Your notes are now actually your notes. And I'm going to try something new or once it's actually old. I'm going back to what I used to do. Some of y'all might remember I used to give out notes and preach from the slides. I'm prompted to do that again because the uh, teenagers are now hooked on Adolfo's method of preaching and giving out his notes. So for like a few weeks, the teenagers would come up to me and be like, can I get your notes? Can I get your notes? It's kind of like the guitar rock or like the drumstick. Can I get your pick, your drumstick, whatever? You know, and so I'm going back to it. Some of you all will remember it. It's very familiar. Uh, just to help you get acclimated, your notes now have blanks to fill in. Okay, you have blanks to fill in that correspond with my message. And as I'm going, please don't interrupt. If you have a question, ask your neighbor. You have to be like, teacher, uh, I missed number three. Okay, you'll get it on the tape or get it from your neighbor. But this will now help you, and hopefully adults can study like young people. Amen? As you can see from the slide on the screen, I'm going to talk to you today about 12 lessons I've learned in 12 years of pastoring. It's been a while. Come on. Do I look kind of the same? Only about, what, 20 pounds heavier right there? That suit's a little bit slimming on the right. That kind of helps me out a little bit. My mother was missing me so bad in New Orleans. She said, all I want for Mother's Day is a picture of you. So I went and put on my suit, stood out there in the 90-degree weather, and I had somebody take a picture of me, and I sent it to my mother. I'm glad that she did because now it stands record that I actually was a thin, strapping young lad like Adolfo. I actually had it together a little bit. They give me a hard time, guys. That's all I'm saying. Just be easy on me. Twelve years. Now, I've been saved for 14 plus years, but nine months were in Bible, co- uh, nine months were before Bible college, and then a year was in Bible college serving other ministries. But I want to share with you a little bit of how my 12 years is made up. I served as a year and a half as a youth pastor of Win Warriors Dream. I did it my last year of, of school at the School of Urban Missions. I did it as a youth pastor in the inner city working in the projects, in the ghetto. I'm talking, it was ghetto, man. I'm, I'm talking the police didn't even want to go there. You all know I'm talking about ghetto. Hello. I mean, it's like the drug dealer is right there on the street. He ain't hiding in his house. He's there on the street, guns strapped to people's ways. It scared me, okay? I was scared. I really was. I used to go home and I said, Lord, save me. Send me somewhere else. I did. I was so afraid. The apartment that I lived in after I graduated for that half a year there, it was so filthy, so dirty. The rats lived there. The mice lived there. I didn't take off my socks and walk barefoot for a year. That's how filthy and dirty I lived in the ghetto. Somebody said the ghetto. After being a youth pastor, living on my own, God told me to start a church in that house. So in that house I was living in, I started a church. And we actually picked the day, me and my, the, the young man that was working with me from the school, Mardi Gras Sunday. So those of you who remember New Orleans, Mardi Gras Sunday. So imagine the Lord saying that. You start your church now, okay? Those of you who are in a church planning class, that's not the day you normally want to pick. You want to pick Easter or, you know what I'm saying, the holidays or something. I picked Mardi Gras. So we had like my guy from SUM, a homeless person show up, and uh, a youth and her mom, and that was our church. It was like four people. 
And I pastored that church for about four years. It ended up becoming a great church. God moved in a wonderful way. And I merged it. That means I gave it to another gentleman. And he pastored those people until the Hurricane Katrina came. And that's where I have a personal heart for that city is because I saw those people get dispersed all over the country. And if you met Mina, Mina was living in Indianapolis. And she was one of my girls from back there. So when we merged that church, I came to Chicago, worked at Belmont Assembly of God for eight months. That's where Nancy was at. So I, I married my secretary. Amen. Hallelujah. Had an affair with her. But it was just us. So don't think bad about it. But yeah, the pastor fell in love with the secretary. So we, we met there. We fell in love. That's where all the good stuff came. Some of y'all remembering me from that. Then after that time, I took about... Um, Oh, man, maybe about three to six months sabbatical, just chilling, trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And then I spent five years as a pastor in Chicago. So I know those numbers, they're kind of messed up. That did it by itself. But year and a half as a pastor in one warrior's dream, four and a half years and as a senior pastor, eight months as a youth pastor, five years as the senior pastor here. So it kind of looks like a trend where I start off as a youth pastor and then become a pastor, as a youth pastor and become a pastor. Now, another thing you might notice is that I I've been in Chicago the longest as a pastor. And so this is the longest thing going. This is the best thing going. This is the shikaboomba. Amen. I mean, this is the butter on my grits. Okay. This is it, man. This is my Super Bowl every Sunday. Look at your neighbor and say he just loves you. So this is the base that I'm going to talk to you about because, you know, next week I just want to give you guys vision, where I see us going in the next five to ten years. But I really wanted to share with, with you my experience being a pastor, where I came from, helping all of you guys catch up. Because if you ever watch shows like Lost, you know, it's like a five-season show. How many know they always do that first episode before the season that gets you all caught up? Does anybody realize that? Or like if you like reality shows like, you know, Biggest Loser whatever, every time they always fill you in on what's going on. So some of you might have just came to the church this year. Some of you might have been here this whole time. Some of you in between. So I want to let you know, this is who I am. That's what I've done. And this is what we're going to do now in the future, okay? And now here are 12 lessons I'm going to give you that I've learned in 12 years of ministry. How many are ready? Say, I'm ready. Amen. Let's go through them. Lesson number one, everything in the kingdom of God Start small. And go to that scripture, Matthew chapter 25, verse 23. Everything in the kingdom starts small. What I realized starting off in Bible college is that I wasn't going to be the next Billy Graham right off the bat. I realized that I wasn't going to be the next Rod Parsley. That my ministry was going to be to two people. And that one person was going to leave and eventually, it was just going to be one. Somebody say the ministry of one. Imagine this. You spend your whole life preparing for something, and then God says, here it is, just one person. That's it. You see, what I've learned in ministry is that you have to become less to become greater. You have to be a servant to become great. I feel like I am the pastor of four people, like I am the best four-person pastor. And like now the Lord is like taking that boast away from me because I got so used to pastoring four people, like I was the best pastor of four people you would ever meet. 
I mean, you, you don't understand. I would pick you up for church. That's what I did in New Orleans. I would pick them up for church. After, I would, this is what I would do. I would pick them up in the van, bring them to the house. Then I would sing the songs on the guitar. Then I would preach to them. Then I would have the meal prepared to serve them. Then after that, I would hang out with them. Then bring them back home. Then I would call them up during the week to see if they wanted to do a Bible study. I would then go to their house, do the Bible study. I was the best pastor of four people you could ever find. And when we started Metro Praise, how many know that's the way it was? Jessica Salas, it's the way it was. You came over to the house. But this time it was just Nancy and I. Uh, Dahlia remembers coming to the church, had my father-in-law to help. But there's Joe right up there playing the guitar, doing the slideshow, you know, running the offering, doing whatever I had to do. And I want to encourage you guys with these lessons because you know what? Right now we're small to what we're going to be. And, and, and you can be encouraged by saying, man, Joe's talking about reaching 100,000. He's you know, going to reach 500 churches. Let me tell you something. We're the biggest we've ever been. <laughs> I mean, this is packed for us right now. You've got to understand. This, like, we go home and we're like, yeah, did you see how many people were there? Awesome. I mean, that's what I'll do today. Are you with me? It starts off small, but it never stays that way. You see, Matthew 25, 23 says, His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put in charge of you many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So what did I find out? Well, if I was faithful in discipling-ish, if I was faithful in meeting with Salvador, if I was faithful and my wife was faithful with meeting with Belle, and if we were faithful to do the small things, God would give us bigger things. And then we got another facility. And then we got another Bible study. And then another leader came. And then a worship leader came, glory to God. And then I didn't have to sing anymore, amen? And and praise God. And then the ushers came. And I was thinking about this last night. As I was preparing this message, I was thinking, this is all i got to do. That's all I got to do. Just preach today's message. That's it. My friends, there used to be a time where there were so many things on my mind that I had to do. But today, all I had to do was come and do this. So I want to say thank you for helping me learn that lesson. Now I want to give the lesson back to you. Starting off in crossover, you guys had to start with a few people. Now you have a few more, but you have to keep growing. The adult small group. Hey, it may be small compared to what other small groups are, maybe other churches, but you keep doing it. Maybe it takes a year. Maybe it takes five years. Latino ministry, you keep doing it. As Pastor Grogan, a great pastor, that guy who raised all that money, taught me, you preach, pray, and plug away. Come on, everybody say that. Preach, pray, and plug away. You see, my friends, things start off small in the kingdom of God. Look at it. When God started the human race, what did he start with? A whole bunch of people? No, Adam and Eve. When God started a nation, who did he start with? A whole bunch of people? No, Abraham. Come on, when God called Joseph to be a leader, who did he start with? He put him in prison. And then they were in bondage for 400 years. But that was his chosen people. When Jesus came, how many disciples did he have? Twelve. When Jesus left the church on this earth to wait on Pentecost, how many of them were there? 120. You see, my friends, God always starts off in his kingdom things that are small so they can grow. Look at a seed. When you look at a big oak tree, does the oak tree seed look huge like that? No. 
Oak tree seeds, just like that, just a little seed. What about all of these other things that you see in the garden and the, and the fields out there? They all come from seeds. How about a person? You guys are big. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm pretty big. I'm a big boy. I'm a big girl. But where did you come from? A seed. Have you ever seen sperm under the microscope? It's like that little tadpole looking thing. You know? And then it attaches to the egg. And then there it is. That's how you and I got here. I'm sorry to talk about the birds and the bees, but that's how we started. You see, things in the kingdom of God start small, but they end up big if you're faithful. Somebody say faithful. I want to go to lesson two. Turn with me to Proverbs 27.10. The kingdom of God is built with relationships. Somebody say relationships. And now I'm telling you my lessons. See, I'm not trying to force my experience on anybody, but I want to encourage you. Some of these things may affect you more than others. But when I first got saved, I had a little bit of an attitude. I wasn't always a nice person. Yeah, I don't know if you can imagine that. But I thought I was better than everybody else. I'll just be honest with you. I had an attitude. Okay? I'm telling you. I didn't like a lot of people. I thought I was better than people. When I went to Bible college, I rebuked Brother Anthony at his table because I didn't really like the way he was acting. I, I thought it was my personal job to correct bad behavior. And guess what I found myself to be? A real lonely person. A real lonely person. And I remember I only had really one or two good friends. They were from my hometown. They were going to North Central Bible College. I was, and that's in Minnesota. And I was going way down there to New Orleans. And we had hung out over break. And I had come back to school and nobody liked me there. I'm talking nobody. And I remember walking up to this young man, Dylan, tears coming down my eyes. And I said, dude, I command you in the name of Jesus, be my friend. I command you, dude, you have to be my friend. And he's like, it doesn't work that way. And I began to learn about relationships. Look at Proverbs 27.10. Do not forsake your friend and the friend of your father. And do not go to your brother's house when disaster strikes you. Better a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. You know what I began to realize is that I had to make relationships. I had to start becoming a friend to have friends. And so I had to stop being so self-righteous. I had to stop having an attitude. And I began to find out that relationships work like a circle. On the outward ring are people that are in the crowd. You don't know them. They don't know you. The next inward ring is acquaintances, people that you meet. Hey, don't I know you? We go to the same gym. Or, yeah, you work to the cubicle next to me. But you don't know their name or number. The next circle is is committed friends or, or people that you like. They're committed to you. They have your name, your number. Maybe it's a day off. You're going to hang out with them. Then the next circle is close friends. These are the people you call all the time. You're just like, hey, let's hang out. Maybe you have a clique of close friends. And then right there in the center of that circle is intimate friends. Maybe your husband, wife, best friend, best man, best lady friend. You share everything with in life. Now, here's what I found out. People in life travel in and out of those circles. That was something that I had to learn. That sometimes you have a real close friend, you grow up with them, but they begin to go away from intimate, and maybe they become close, and then maybe they become acquainted, uh, committed. Then before you know it, it's like an acquaintance. It's like, hey, man, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. A long time no see. And then you kind of move on. You see, what I had to realize is that friendships come and go, but I had to be a friend wherever I was. And so I made friends with people in New Orleans, and I made friends with... Uh, 
the leaders there. We had interns come down. And then when I came to Chicago and I left youth pastoring, I didn't have no friends. And it wasn't because I wasn't a friendly guy. I mean, I was a cool guy. It's just that my friends were going to another church, and then I didn't know anybody because I don't go to Belmont anymore. And I remember one time seeing Ishmael talk to the youth pastor on these front steps of a porch, and I was at this little house party for Esau Lord willing, she'll be here next week, back from college. And uh, I saw John Velser, Pastor John, say to Ish, hey, let's, let's go talk in front. And they kind of separated from the group, and I saw them go sit in front, and then Nancy and I were leaving. And I saw John and Ish having this conversation, and my heart just sunk within me because I said, man, I wish I had a friend like that. I said, I wish I had somebody in the ministry just to talk to. But you see, I kept being friendly. And we started playing Xbox in my house. And the kids came over in the youth group and, and the young adults. And eventually Ricky came over. And I don't think Ricky liked me at first. And then eventually Ricky and I became friends. And Ricky and Ish have become my bestie friends. They're, they're my broskies. They're my BFFs. Okay? And, and now, and now Carrasco, he's still deciding, but I think he's coming this way. I think we're going to be broskies. I get a thumbs up or you, oh, I get the thumbs up. Okay. And, and I've realized that being people's friends is not being fake. It's not trying to tell them what to do. It's just being their friend. I see you two friends sitting together, Corey and Dylan. Everybody say, aww. <laughs> So that's a lesson that I learned is you need friendships. Don't go through life alone. It's really lonely. Amen. Go to 2 Timothy 1.7. Here's an important thing that I learned. Fear is an emotion, not a fact. Do you know that I dealt with so much fear after I got saved? I didn't know what was going wrong with me. I had been homeless. I had slept in my car. I had done drugs. I had committed crimes. I had been arrested eight times. I had done 40-plus days in a juvenile detention center, three days in another juvenile home. I had been everywhere and anywhere. I woke up in people's homes. I didn't know how I got there. I had people want to fight me. I used to carry a gun underneath my seat. My life was bad. But listen to me. I didn't have any fear. I was just stupid. I was crazy. I didn't have any fear. I'll get drunk, and that was it. I'll get high. That was it. Well, all of a sudden, I get saved. That night, I get saved. I'm afraid to go to bed. They say, dealing with drug addicts, that what was happening was is I had made a crutch on drugs, and I didn't know how to do anything without drugs. That's why when you see those commercials, like the woman, she's making her drink at work, and is trying to teach her, you can, you can go to work without drinking, so you can, you can smoke, uh, you can go to work without smoking. I don't know if you've seen those commercials. They're trying to teach them you can do these things you used to do with smoking. You can do it without smoking. And that's exactly what it was for me. I had so much fear. I was afraid to go to bed. Listen, I was an 18-year-old kid after living that crazy life. I knocked on my parents' door and I said, can I sleep in your bed tonight? My mom slept in my bed and my dad put his arms around me and he told me everything was okay. That was day one. Then the weekend, they had to go somewhere. So here's my first weekend, I'm saved, and now they leave. So I'm delivering pizzas, that was my job. I get down around 2 in the morning. I'm afraid to go to my parents' house. Now you've got to understand, I've lived in every place you could have lived in Fort Wayne, bad neighborhoods, good neighborhoods, and now I'm afraid to go to my own parents' house in the suburbs. I called up their pastor and asked if I could stay within his house for that weekend. 
My friend's fear began to have a grip on me. I began to be afraid of just stupid things. I was afraid to go to bed. I was afraid to go out witnessing. I was afraid to go do this. I was afraid to do this. I started dealing with all these fears. And then within that uh, first few months of Bible college, it just got to grip me. Like I just felt like I couldn't do anything. I was afraid of everything. I came home, and over Thanksgiving break, I confessed to my mom. I said, Mom, I can't go to bed. I'm afraid to do all these things. Can you pray for me? My mother prayed for me, gave me this scripture, and I'm telling you, from that day forward, I've been set free. Now, friends, have I had fear come against me? I've had fear come against me almost every time I want to do something. How many know fear came against me to go the first time to India? I didn't even know that, dude. I didn't know Pastor Amit. He might have hijacked us. He might have took us over. I was afraid to be on a plane for that long. What's it like being on a plane for 16 hours? You know, now with Pakistan. But you know what I've always realized is this. Fear is an emotion. It's not a fact. Let me give you an example. Let me just take one that's really simple, like the fear of heights. Okay? Let's say you take somebody to the Sears Tower. They get up there, and they're afraid. They're afraid. Oh, I'm afraid. I'm so high. Let me ask you a question. If you took them down on the ground floor, moved them aside, and they looked at that building for 24 hours, how many know that building wouldn't fall? It would still be there. But why are they up there thinking it's going to fall? Because it's an emotion, not a fact. The fact is, the building's going to be there. You're fine. The emotion says, freak out. Are you with me? See, that day we go to Pakistan, how many know that plane's going to land over there? Plane crashes are so far and few and in between. But we have to get on that plane and say, I believe it's going to land. You see, we can't get over the uh, the fear of, oh, I'm going to be claustrophobic in this little plane for 15 hours. I don't know what I'm going to do. Is there a terrorist on this plane? Why is that guy getting up with the towel on his head? What's going on with this one? Why is he looking at me for, oh, okay, let's do something else. No, I'm telling you. You just can't do that. I mean, we were flying in India. Nobody was white. Nobody. I mean, it's like, you know, like you get on a plane now, like you're flying to Florida for like your vacation. You see one guy with his name, Aknad, and you're like going crazy. Like when you're in India, like everybody is Aknad. Everybody. There is nobody that's not the plane driver. So it's like if they're flying that thing into a, a, a building, everybody's dying. All the Aknads are dying. So the whole idea is you can't be afraid. Fear is an emotion. It's not a fact. Don't believe it. That's a little lesson that I learned. Second Timothy 1 7 says, For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and self discipline. Somebody say, Amen. Lesson number four worship is the most effective prayer. Man, I have prayed hours. I have gone, let me tell you a little bit about my prayer life. I, I, when I first got saved, I just went into this. No one taught me this. I prayed for an hour a day, and I read my Bible an hour a day. I worked as a roofer. Then I did driving pizzas. It's just that's what I did. I never uh, stopped doing that. I went into Bible college. I did the same thing. When I graduated Bible college, I wanted to get closer to God. So I started praying three hours a day and reading my Bible for an hour. So that's four hours a day with Jesus. I was working a part-time uh, job for the Lord. You know what I'm saying? But you know what? It wasn't always effective. I didn't always feel close to God. But you know when I would feel close to God? Just naturally getting up in the morning, singing a worship song, maybe taking a shower, going for a walk. And you know what I began to realize over these last 12 years? Is that the most effective, the most on-fire times, the times that I get the most answers, the times where everything makes sense, is when I worship. It's when I tell him how awesome he is. It's when I tell him how great he is. You say, I want to encourage you with that lesson today. How many know you can just say this to God? God, I need you to bless me with money. Like, 
I need you to heal my body. It's one sentence. That's your need. You don't have to talk about it for an hour. Like, I need it so bad. I need it really, really so bad. Oh, dear God, I need it. Okay, five minutes have gone by. God, I need it. You don't have to do that. Just, God, I need it. There it is. Did you pray today? Did you let him know your needs? Yeah, you, you did. Okay? The rest of the time, just worship him. Love him. Trust me, it goes a lot better that way. Because you just feel God. You're, you're okay with the Lord. You're, you're, you're trusting Him that everything is going to be alright. Look at John 4.23. Yet a time is coming and now has come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. Somebody say the Father seeks. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. You see, God is looking for us when we do that. He's looking for that. He's looking for you to wake up every morning, take time with Him, spend your day with Him, just worshiping Him. I mean, you don't have to learn my lessons if you don't want to. It's up to you. But I'm telling you, it's so much more effective for me. Just worshiping Him. Do I now have an egg timer when I pray? No. I just go out and pray. Do I pray with my eyes closed, kneeling down all the time anymore? No. Most of the time I pray now walking around my block, just praying, worshiping in my basement, Jumping around like a madman with my headphones on, just, you know, praising God. Why? Because worship is so effective in touching God. I want to encourage you with that. Here's lesson number five, Acts 2.17. Visions and dreams are the language of God. I have learned over these 12 years that when God and I are talking the best is when I'm daydreaming, imagining, or seeing a vision of what He's going to do. That's when I talk the best to God. Because I can't see it here. I can never understand what He is saying here. It never makes sense in the natural. It never does. Just like I was saying to you, I was walking and thinking about Dubai, and I began to think, man, what if a Saudi prince got saved? Or what if while I was snowboarding out there, what if this young man got saved and his dad was a businessman and he helped provide for us an apartment out there, and we began to live out there three months out the year and reach the Muslim world? You know, that's a dream. That's a vision. You see, God communicates that way. God talks to us that way. You know, we, we think of imagination like Spider-Man and, 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 you know, Never Neverland. God, guys, God gave us imagination to communicate with Him because we can't do it in the natural. I mean, I think of Young Ji Cho who started his church in South Korea with four people and he started preaching really loud at them. They said, Pastor, we can hear you. We're right next to you. He says, I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching of the thousands to come because we're going to build the largest church in the world. He had a vision of building the largest church in the world and he did by God's grace. And, and what if at the end of the day all of our dreams don't come true? I mean, what if at the end of the day a Saudi prince didn't get saved? Well, isn't that, it, wasn't it just good enough to have motivation to get out there and believe? Just to believe something good can happen out there. What if it doesn't? Okay, but what if it does? You know, you can live your life not expecting anything, and I'll guarantee you this, nothing will happen. I can guarantee you that if you don't try something you never tried, if you don't expect cool things to happen, if you don't stretch your imagination, if you don't dare to dream, I'll guarantee you this, nothing will ever change. But if you dream, you have the chance now. Things can change. And not every dream is wrapped up in a lottery ticket, my friends. Dream bigger dreams than that. What's your family going to be like? What's your job going to be like in the future? What's this church going to be like? Where are you going? Come on. God loves that. God loves that. Listen to me. God loves that. 
I thought I was crazy when I would spend half my prayer time just imagining with God. But then he began to speak to me. He's like, that's how I talk to people. That's how I communicate. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. God is looking for people that dream. You know, you see all these things, you know, what took the kid out of us? What took the, the life out of us? Was it your job, the nine to five, the divorce, the heartbreak? You know, that has a biblical principle. You know, we're kids. We have childlike faith. We believe we can become firemen. We believe we can become the president. And then what happens after a few of life's defeats? We stop dreaming. We just become satisfied with wherever we are. And we say, I'm just cool as long as it stays like this. No, don't do that dream. Dream. Have dreams for your kids. Have dreams for your life. And in your time of prayer, bounce those dreams off God. Try to start businesses. You know, Ish has an idea. He's going to try to start. David Crosco has a business. Have dreams for your businesses. Have dreams for your life. Come on, somebody. Can you say amen? Lesson number six I've learned. Halfway there. Hold on. Spiritual gifts are not earned. They're given as gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 11. I have always been, since day one, hungry to have spiritual gifts in my life. Now, let me preface this by saying, I'm not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit speaking in other tongues, because I believe that is for every believer. Like, you can expect that right now. You can say, God, I want it, get it, and walk in that. I believe that it happens, and I have the Bible to prove that, okay? But this is what I'm saying. After you do that, and many of us are in the same place. I see a lot of our young brothers, you're starting off, and sisters, you want to be so radical. Let me just help you what I've learned in 12 years. Let me just give you some advice, Vanessa. Would you like some advice with you and me right now? Okay. This guy and girl talk, but it's cool, okay? Pastor, pastor, spiritual daughter talk, okay? Here we go. David Hogan sees people raised from the dead. Carlos and Acondia caused revival. God used him. I never saw them get somebody up out of a wheelchair when they prayed. I watched them. These guys are people of great faith. David Hogan prays all the time. He says he prays, he fasts every other day. But I didn't see people get up out of a wheelchair. I've watched Pastor Anthony pray for hundreds of people. I haven't watched the blinded eyes open. What have I learned after all of this? That at the end of the day, we're just to be obedient. I'm not going to ever say that God doesn't want to heal because somebody doesn't get healed. But I'm never going to say, if I do more, I'll get more. It's not doing. I've watched people, and I'll get to this one in a minute, have spiritual gifts, and their character is terrible. I've watched seasons in my life, as you guys saw a year and a half ago, Spiritual gifts flying everywhere. Words of knowledge, healing, demons cast out. I didn't pray or fast any more during that time than I had done the time before. Listen to me. I have studied revival after revival after revival. Brownsville revival eventually end. Were they not pray enough? Man, they were praying every single day. I've seen hundreds of people go by Oral Roberts in those videos and not get healed. Oral Roberts was supposed to be one of the best. Catherine Kuhlman. I'm telling you, my friend, it doesn't matter what great revivalist, uh, spiritual giant you look to, Smith Wigglesworth, who saw the dead race, he himself had kidney stones. At the end of the day, you know what I've learned? Is their gifts. Their gifts. We eagerly seek them. We never stop praying for them. We never stop laying our hands out for people to be healed. But at the end of the day, if you think in your head, if I fast more, I get more, it doesn't work that way. 
It just does it. And it was so freeing to me to learn I don't have to fast and pray 20 hours a day to now heal a cold. Like, okay, I prayed only an hour today. I could only heal the colds. Okay, tomorrow I'm going to pray five hours, and then we're going to pray for those who have bad back pain. And then what we're going to do is fast for three weeks, and then we're going to get a lot of power, and somebody's going to get up out of a wheelchair. I fasted for 10 days for one specific miracle, and it didn't happen. A young man was in our church with cerebral palsy, and we prayed for him, for ten, fasted for 10 days. He did not get up. I then called another 10-day fast. Listen to me. All liquids. That was it. So we fasted 10 days. Perhaps the shikaboomba over the weekend. He didn't get healed. We started another 10 days. Guess what? The guy never got healed. Because I still believe it's a spiritual gift. Everybody say a gift. Now, does that make an excuse to not seek after God? Does that make an excuse not to believe that everyone can be healed? No, it's just at the end of the day, you've taken off the responsibility like you're the one that to blame. You need to condemn yourself, which I've done to myself so many times. I literally remember, and listen to me, guys, I literally remember during that time, here was our prayer meeting after the ten, the two 10-day fast failed. Here's how the prayer meeting went. I was up at the front. I said this. It is our fault this man did not get healed. It is our fault New Orleans is still full of violence. So we're going to repent of all of our sin until God comes down and blesses this place. We had no more. I remember one person was repenting that they had not read their Bible for three hours. They said, I, I, I made a commitment to read for three hours a day to memorize ten scriptures, and it's my fault. Do you understand? That's a guilty, con- condemning mindset. That's not how God moves. God gives gifts to His people. Judas had the gifts to heal and cast out devils, and his heart wasn't even right. Come on, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. As much as that bothers me, because I wish I could see everybody healed all of the time, I have to understand that God is ultimately in control. I hope that blessed somebody. Can you say amen if it did? Lesson 7. Go to Ephesians 4.31. Bitterness is a disease only cured by forgiveness. My friends, I have suffered from bitterness so many times. And every time I think I'm over it, it comes right back. My friends, let me tell you about one tragic time of bitterness. When I left SUM Bible College, I was in the inner city. I was pastoring this small church. And I noticed that our professors lived in suburbs. And they weren't pastoring. They were only teaching. And they were being hard on us. And they confessed about them being hard. So this doesn't justify their behavior. But they were being tough on us to really go out there and plant churches and do outreaches and pray more and fast more and do more. And God will bless you. And I remember Brother Anthony and I had a severe argument at the Bible college, and I just totally disrespected him. I yelled at him, and I said, you're wrong. I know I'm right, and I'm done with you. And he said, I'm done with you. And we walked away. And I had enough sense to get under another spiritual covering. I was under another pastor, Pastor Grogan. He was the man that ended up marrying Nancy and I. But years went by. And because of that, what happened was I had bitterness in my heart. And how many know hurt people hurt people? So I began to mistreat my staff. I began to exemplify. I began to treat them the way I had thought I had been treated. I began to hurt. The abuser, the abused became the abuser. 
And I began to abuse my staff. And I remember one young man came and he said, dude, you are mistreating everybody here. He was going to speak for me on Sunday. I was so angry that he had corrected me about how I was treating people that when he was preaching, I got jealous of him, interrupted his message and just took the mic and said he said enough in front of the four people. I mean, you got to remember the church was four people. But still, that's what I did. He said, I'm never coming back here. This was one of my close friends. And he says, and I'm going to warn all of your staff members that you are nuts right now. You are wrong and your spirit's not right. And I was still hardening in my heart. Then I went on an encounter retreat, a retreat that we had learned to do to seek God, something similar to what we do now. It was called an encounter retreat. And on that encounter retreat, they said, and I was leading it as the pastor said in the book, to have people confess their bitterness and get right with God. And I opened up my heart just a smidgen to admit that I had mistreated them and I had bitterness. And the moment I did, tears gushed out from me. My heart was broken, and I repented of how I treated them and of bitterness. But it still wasn't out because I had not reconciled to Brother Anthony and them. But I had reconciled to the staff members. I realized I treated them like garbage. I washed their feet. I'm weeping. Just opening my heart a little bit. It was like cracking a dam. It just busted open. I was at a service seeing demons cast out, miracles, and the pastor said, if you cannot pray for your enemy, Lord, bless them more than you bless me, then you have bitterness in your heart. Think about that. If you can't pray for your enemy, your enemy, think of the person you think of as an enemy. If you can't say, God, bless them more than you bless me, then you got bitterness. And the moment he said that, he said, pastors, I'm especially talking to you. I'm telling you, the conviction of God went up and down my spine. He said, I'm calling you to the front, pastors. Right now, pastors first. If you're bitter, you come here. It was an auditorium of 3,000 people. I ran to the front, fell on my face to the point that the speaker said, get that man up here. He called me up on the stage and cast out the spirit of bitterness and set me free. And that day I called up Brother Anthony and I asked for forgiveness. And a few months later I reconciled with Brother George. And because of that, I believe I'm where I'm at today. And this church is where it's at because of relationships with mentorship. But it was bitterness that was blocking my road. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. And I want to tell you something, friends. People have hurt me so many times in the ministry, I get tempted to be bitter. All the time. Okay, imagine your life. Just imagine your life. You know how many friends you have. You know how many family members you have. You know how many coworkers, And they seem to have a tendency to make you bitter at times. Now imagine me being a pastor, all of y'all up in this place. It happens almost on a weekly basis. Even just last week, these people aren't even aware of it. But bitterness began to set in my heart. And we needed to talk to the elders and Griselda and Berto. And we needed to pray. And we needed to set it free. And say, we forgive them, we forgive them, we forgive them, because they don't know no better. It always comes. So my friend, my thing to you is never let it get in your life. It's a cancer. It will choke out your life. It will choke out your spiritual fruit. And it will ruin everything God is doing. Amen? Lesson 8. Turn with me to Matthew six Aren't you glad I'm not talking about 24 things? I was just going to double it, like two a year. 24 lessons I've learned in 12 years. Oh, Hallelujah. Material things never satisfy, only God. You know what I've, how I've learned this lesson? I've learned it because I've always set something that I want. Oh, when, when we were in our house, if we just had a church to meet in, I'll be so much happier. 
then we have a church, and I'm not really that happy. Oh, God, if we only had our own building to meet in, then I'll be happy. Then we get our own building. God, if I only had it on Sundays, I'll be happy. And then with our house, God, if I lived in a bigger house, I'll be happy. I was thinking of this yesterday as I was peering out my window, looking at the apartments across from my house, and I was thinking about how I used to sit in the apartments and look at the houses, and I used to be so jealous of those houses, saying, oh, I wish I could live in that house. And now I'm in that house, and I'm looking at those apartments, and I'm saying, there's really no difference. I'm not saying that nice things don't make life easier. I thank God for my iPhone. I'm glad that my car today runs, has gas and air conditioning and heat. I'm glad that I live in a beautiful house. I'm glad I can relax with the 65-inch TV. Praise the Lord. That's a little blessing. Okay, I'm glad to have those things. But let me tell you something. It doesn't satisfy. At the end of the day, you sit in front of it like you did in front of the 12-incher. At the end of the day, your phone is a phone. At the end of the day, your life is still empty unless you go to God. I found that out. And I don't know if you guys have ever felt that way. You always tell yourself, if I just was there, I would be happy. No, there never comes. It's always here. Because if I always say, over there, no, it starts here. You see, it's not over there when I get this, this, and that. No, it starts right here. Matthew 6, 24 says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's that simple. Does, it sat, does that 65-inch TV satisfy me? No. Does, does, does having a nice house satisfy? No, it's nice. I'm glad it's there. I'm not giving it away to the dorms. I know you guys like to have the ping-pong table too. But, I mean, it's nice, but it doesn't satisfy. How many of you all know what I'm talking about? There's only one thing that satisfies us when you get alone with God. Doesn't matter how much money you have, doesn't matter what type of house you live in, doesn't matter what cars you're driving, it's you and God. I've learned that. Today, there's this many people here. This can't satisfy my soul. Only God can. Maybe, oh God, if I had 500, I would feel so much better about myself. No, still be empty. Only God. Amen? Lesson number nine. Another lesson that I've learned is character matters over giftings. Proverbs 11.3. In 12 years of ministry, I have seen some of the smartest people do the dumbest things. Are you listening to me? I have seen some of the gifted people throw everything away. It first started off in Bible college. There was a young man from the Caribbean. This guy could preach. He could sing. If he was up here right now and you guys didn't know us and you said, man, who do you want as your pastor? You would point to the Caribbean dude and you would say, that dude is on fire. Give me that guy. He can sing. He can preach. He's, an, he's a mature guy. He looks good. He is a beast, man. He is awesome. If you just didn't know us and you were like Samuel coming to pick out the king, you would say, dude, that is the one right there that dude kissed another girl in the elevator while he was engaged to his fiance while his fiance was in the islands he was making out with a girl in the elevator at the school starting from there to the pastor who helped disciple me divorcing his wife to the other pastor him cheating on his wife to watching uh, people on TV that I admired fall into sin and lose it all and watching people come into this church where you're just like wow look at them they're so gifted they're going to win this city for Jesus let's help them out and then them throw it all away and become atheists I've learned that character is what matters your giftings may get you to the mountaintop but it's your character that will have you stay there. 
And it works in every place, my friends. It's not the person who comes to the job, who brags about what they can do, who can do really great. No, it's the one who comes early and stays late. It's the one who puts in their work and their time. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity, by their fakeness, by their hypocrisy. You know what I've realized over 12 years? Is that the, the hare always loses and the tortoise always wins. The rabbit loses. The one who starts off so fast. I've watched churches, even since I've been in Chicago. They've got this. They've got that. They're starting this way. They're blowing up. Gone now. I've watched people always try to be the best and make everything so great. And you talk to them. All they do is talk about themselves. And everybody says how awesome they are. And they fizzle out. But I've watched people come to this church and just take a baby step. Take a baby's, and then people are zip, zipping right by them, but they fall because they don't build a foundation. And yet somebody just takes a baby step, takes a baby step, and they begin to win the race. Baby steps. Anybody remember that with Bill Murray, baby steps? No, that's okay. I'm, I'm not as sanctified as you. I'm sorry. Pray for me. What about Bob? Okay, that's the movie. What about Bob? Yeah, baby steps. Okay. My friends, I want to encourage you today. If your heart is right, you'll get to the goal. You'll make it. If your heart is right, you'll make it. If you will slack on character, you're going to have a hard fall. And woe to you when you do, because you're going to hurt a lot of people. Lesson number 10. Humbly serving is the outward display of love. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Is anybody wondering if I've learned a lesson of, uh, of not preaching long messages or something? Are you all hanging in right now? How many are hanging in? Say amen. All right. It's like maybe lesson 13. Don't preach long messages. <laughs> I'll make it up to you guys next week. We're going to have a good visionary meeting next week. I just want to share my heart. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Humbly serving is the outward display of love. I have always been challenged to love people in serving. I can be your best friend. I can come next to you, and I can tell you in a hundred ways verbally how much I love you. But the hardest thing for me to do is to prove it by serving you. That's the hardest thing I've learned. The hardest thing for me to do when we first started the church was to serve the people that were there and to listen to them talk every single week about the same things. And no offense to those of you who were there, it just was hard. Because I'm a pastor and I'm wired for the whole flock. So I'm wired for a congregation like this. Like, okay, Vanessa, how was your day? Like two minutes out until, okay, cool. Monique, how was your day? All right, awesome. Okay, Adolfo, everything good? We're friends, good. Jared, holla. You know what I'm saying? Dahlia, everything good? Okay, tell Belle we love them. Like, I was wired for that. But then all of a sudden, it's like, Okay, guys, what's going on? Sitting every Sunday at the end of little couches right there. And he was like, it was like this hurting because I just didn't know how to serve. It's just hard. What's going on? Tell me about your life. Tell me what, like, I probably could tell you, like, almost everything about Belle's life at that time. Her car broke down. She lost family members. Everything about Jessica and Salvador and the things that happened. I could just, like, way I could write your own biography. Because I just had to sit there and hear. And there was this guy named Kevin. We could talk about him because he's not here anymore. And he was going through AA. And I would go and do the 101 book with him. And every time before we did the 101 book, we had to talk about all of his problems. And then finally, like, we'd get to the 101 book. And I was just like, come on, dude. Let's just do the 101 book. Come on, talk about this. Y'all ain't feeling it. I'm sorry. I just told on myself. It's like, <laughs> gone. <laughs> 
it was just like this, the sagebrush just blowing right down the middle of the, the church right there. As I just got it off my chest. Poor Kevin, where is he? Pray for him. Listen, I would sit and just be like, what are we doing? I remember one one-on-one meeting. This was, this is a little sad, but if you want to laugh, it's whatever it comes off to you, you know. I, I had not had many people in the church. I don't want to name the name because I don't want you guys to, to, you know, think less of this person. But we go out and I'm like, one-on-one, guys. Y'all know the one-on-one. I mean, wrote the book. I love the book. It's like I'm trying to help people believe the book will actually work. We are in Dunkin' Donuts. He challenges me on the fact if the book is correct and if he even needs a book. So I'm like, dude, come on, man. You need the book. We all need a book. Come on, we're just going to learn the Bible right now. He's like, no, man, I don't think I need the book. I've been a Christian a long time. He's like raising his voice in the Dunkin' Donuts. We then proceed into a full-fledged argument. I've lost my pastoral card. I've set it down. I'm like, I quit right now. I'm going to tell you what I think. And I'm telling him what I think. He's up in my face. Our faces are totally red. Somebody walks up to him and goes, what church are you guys from? And I'm like... I'm like, Metro Praise? He's like, good, because I ain't going to that one. She actually said that to us. She's like, good, I ain't going. I don't want what this is. I was like, I just like put my head. I'm like, Lord, will there ever be someone that wants it? But I had to serve. That was me serving. Cleaning these floors. You know what I'm saying? That's why I can't wait to carpet these floors. Somebody say, thank you, Lord. We are carpeting these floors one day. Amen, Brother Nelson. We're carpeting them. These things like these floor tiles, they disgust me. It's hard for me to even live with it, okay? And like I've cleaned them and cleaned them and cleaned them and cleaned them. We've, we've done so many things, but it's all serving. Oh, Philippians 2.5, I'm feeling better. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Oh, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross. I mean, could you just imagine me going home and praying that they, oh God, Kevin did this and that. And he's like, did he kill you? No. And you're God. Praise me for not killing you. I was killed. I died. He just tells you about his problems. What's wrong with you? Like Peter's in heaven going, man, what's wrong with these pastors these days? I mean, come on. Our suffering is so just, it's nothing. And even if we do get martyred, it's so nothing. God was God. And he comes in the flesh to allow himself to be whipped and beaten. That would be like you going to a playground with a toddler, like giving him a bat and a club saying, beat me up. They're beating you. are just like, oh, I could stop this, but I won't because I love him. That's what God was doing. And then it says right here, he, but he made himself nothing. Like, like, let's take the greatest among us. Let's say spiritually like we could rate each other. Let's say like this, there's a spiritual giant. And this, oh, this person is right here. They're the giant of the church. Listen, be compared to everybody else, they're just like right here. They're just like, boop, that's it. There's our spiritual giant factor right there. It's like a factor of like a centimeter, a millimeter. It's like, boop, there it is, okay? How many know the factor between us and God is like from here to heaven? And then God said, I'll become that. I'll become nothing. It's like it's so hard for the spiritual giant in us just to go, boop, okay, I'm humble. Oh, I'm so humble. Really, that is not nothing. 
It's like, this is not, well, Joe, you did that. Oh, you're so good. You know, it's like, that's the problem. I had to learn this lesson. And as you can see, I'm still learning this, so pray for me. And how am I going to learn it with me? That's how we show people we love them as we serve them. Amen. Lesson 11, in closing, two more that are going to be really good. The family is the greatest earthly gift from God. I have learned this in 12 years. Nobody, starting with my parents, loved me like the way they have. Starting with my, going to my wife next. No one has ever loved me like my wife. Like this whole church could turn against me, but if she's on my side, I can take on the world. Like you get that, don't you, with family. And then Bethany, like just boom, it stops. The world stops. There's my child. I've always heard people say they could hear the cries of their daughter. I sometimes still mess it up, but most of the time I can still hear that. That's when it's her. Sometimes I don't know. But, you know, I'm still there. I hear the crying at least, okay? Before I just ignored the crying of babies. But I can, oh, is that Nancy? Oh, no, that's Johnny. Okay, but at least I heard it. But listen, when she comes into the room, bam, that's it. And that's why the devil tries to destroy people's family. When I look at all of the pastoral issues that I've had with people, now I've realized the majority of it came from broken families. I always start off that question now. How was your family growing up? How was your mom? How was your dad? Did you have this? Did you have that? Were you lacking this? Because I see it all goes back to that. I'm not trying to make up some Oprah Winfrey show here. I'm just telling you that, that women and men, when we get together and have children, we're the greatest period, I mean, the greatest examples to our children. The man is the greatest example to his daughter of what a man should be. And the mother is a great example of what she should grow up to be. For the man, the mom is the greatest example of what he should marry and what he should have as a wife and his life and the man teaches him what to be and when that falls apart man just all hell breaks loose men don't know who they're supposed to be women don't know who they're supposed to marry people getting together with broken families and then they're broken people trying to create something but it's still broken i've realized that the greatest gift is a godly family that when we pray together we do stay together that when i think about my parents and how they love the lord and what they've done for me just it boggles my mind i just i'm so thankful for what god has done i'm so thankful for my in-laws i always tease about the part where it says you know it will turn your you know daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law and i always tease about that but i mean my mother-in-law she babysits the children our, our bethany she's going to babysit hannah when she comes like nobody else could ever do like she loves it loves it loves it and I began to think about how much Nancy loves me. And like, just, you know, like my worst day, Nancy can just make sound so good. Like, oh, okay, well, you'll do this better. And it's going to be fine. And I began to think about family. It's what it's all about. After salvation, it's family. Think about it. God gave Adam uh, and Eve a family. And he said, stay on this earth and multiply. Before anything was ever done, he gave them a family. Look at Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Think about God could have called himself a tiger. He could have called, we could be calling him lion, great lion in the sky, be with me today. But how did he term himself? Father. Father. He called himself a father. The son could have been anything. You could be calling him the conqueror, Jesus the conqueror, Jesus the great. But what do we call him? The son of God, the son, the son. You see, God gave the greatest title to himself of a family. And then when he talks about his relationship with the church, he could say, you know, like, I love you like, uh, like a mountain loves snow or whatever weird example I can come up with right now. Like a bird loves the oxygen or the, whatever the birds do. But he says, I love you like a man loves a woman. 
That's what he says. That's the greatest example. Hey, you want to know how I love you? Think of a man loving a woman. Think about how a man will sacrifice for a woman. Think about how a woman will be in awe of her husband. Family is the greatest gift. And I just want to encourage you with all of that here, all of you here and all that's going on in your life, never forget about family. Never forget about family vacations, family dinners together, just family movie nights, just family, 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 because family is the greatest gift after God on this earth. Are you with me? Lastly, lesson 12, what have I learned after all these years is that God loves me, that he loves me, that I have messed it up so many times, but yet he is still there. Two of the greatest mistakes that I I made in my life I'm going to share with you just to encourage you that he'll love you no matter what you're going through. The first mistake that I made was when we were pastoring that church in New Orleans. Our staff was getting a little upset. We would have all of these people come when we would do grocery drives, when we would do, uh, you know, basketball tournaments. And we were so disappointed that all of the, the church was just coming for a freebie. And when we wouldn't give anything away, there would only be a handful of teenagers there and a handful of adults. So I prayingly sought the Lord. This was a prayer. Everybody say a prayer. I prayingly sought the Lord and said, God, what do I do? I believe I missed God. I believe what he was trying to tell me was to give the church to another person who would do that type of mission ministry well. Somebody that would enjoy feeding the poor every day. Somebody that would enjoy having four buses pick up all their people. I felt that the Lord was telling me to do that, but at that time I was too insecure. I didn't know how to merge a church and say, okay, you know, salute, I've done my job, here it is, I'm going to go do the next thing. Because what was in my heart was this, a multicultural, you know, multi-ethnic and, and, and socially economic, you know, diverse group. Rich, poor, white, black, pink, and purple is what I'm saying. And, uh, and so what we did is we said we're going to cut off all transportation, we're going to cut off every free gift, we're going to cut off everything, and we're going to make the people now just come for God. See, the problem was is nobody had transportation. The problem was is most of them were all on Section 8. And so we went from having these large crowds come to these events to all we had is just this small number. And you might say, well, Joe, that's a good thing to start with. But what we did is we crushed the people. Basically, we broke our word to them. We told them, like, we'll be here for you like this, but now we're changing to this. So the old saying is true. What you win them with, you have to keep them with. And we had changed. You know, we had won them. They were our friends based on this, but now we were changing it. And for some of them, they didn't know how to take the bus. They really didn't. They just they, The kids did not have enough sense to do that. They didn't have enough sense to put God first. And so what happened was we lost everything. And I remember being in a service with all the staff and maybe like two people, and none of us were from New Orleans. And we had spent five years in that city. Uh, you know, me pastoring it total was five years. And I remember looking at them going, this is not the church God called me to pastor. We're going to shut it down. That day we shut down our church. And I said to the staff members that had come from Minnesota and, and Illinois and different parts of the country, I said, you guys are free to go do whatever God's put on your heart to do. I'm going to stay here and ask God what he wants me to do. For three months, I talked to the Lord, and God explained to me what I'm explaining to you now. And God said, you messed it up. You did not do what I told you to do. So I went back out, and I got all the people. I I got a few buses. I got another building. And I went and did the same things I did before. And they all came back. And God said, now you give this to somebody else. That day of me giving this... 
to somebody else, since I had done it wrong, my heart was so broken, I cried for those three days, the day I gave it to the pastor and that weekend until I came up to Chicago and did a new job. I cried harder and longer than I cried even for my own sister's funeral, my grandmother's funeral. I cried and cried. My heart was so broken. I had lost relationship, lost respect. I had just done so many things that were wrong. But you know what I realized that day? Is that God still loved me. Because that day I went into his presence and he told me he loved me. I'm telling you, it was a great lesson for me to learn. No matter how much I messed up in ministry, he told me that he still loved me. The second thing that I would like to confess is that when my wife and I were first dating, I uh, was in between jobs at Belmont and here, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I was not knowing how God was going to work out my our marriage or what we were supposed to do. And I felt that she was not the one. My dad, from the moment he hugged her, said, that's your wife. My dad hardly ever gets prophetic words. The moment her mom, my mother-in-law, saw me, when I came to work at the church, she said, that's your, that's your son. God told her that. Now take care of him. And here we started a relationship, and I looked at her in, the, in, in a restaurant. I can remember, and she'll, she'll tell you about it. I told her every reason why we could never be together. And I went nitpicking through her personal appearance, through her attitude, and I said, that's the reason why we can't be together. And I broke up with her, shattered her heart, went back to my dad, and I said, what do you think I'm supposed to do now? You said you had a word. I don't feel it's the one. And a long story short, but the one time I've ever felt anxiety, the one time I ever felt fear come back from that time from Thanksgiving break was those next days that followed. My life fell apart on me so quick. It was like I was spinning out of control. Depression started to set on me. What are you doing? You're a failure, this and that. I wouldn't have committed suicide, something like that. But it was just deep, dark depression. And then I screamed out to God. I hollered out to God. I said, God, what do I have to do? And then God laid out every single thing in my life that I was not willing to do, that I I needed to do. He said, Nancy is your wife. You're going to stay in Chicago. Because I did not want to stay and plant a church in my house. Like, who wants to actually do that? Hey, I want to do that. I want to start with one person. Okay, that's fun. Okay. So I'm like, God, give me a big church. Let me do this. So God said, here's what you need to do. You need to marry her. You need to start a church in your house. And you need to... Do that with everything you have until I come back. And you know what I realized after that huge, terrible mistake is that my wife still loved me. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. And I realized that God still loved me. Would you stand to your feet, please? Just, uh, Chris, would you come to the computer, uh, computer, the uh, keyboard? I'm sorry for going a little long. I just wanted to share with you 12 lessons and 12 years of pastoring. Now you know something about me. Hope that it's encouraged you. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In closing today, I I just want to share that to me means everything. If you can remember anything today from this message, remember that. That God loves you. That Christianity is not a religion of works. 
that it's not like when you do really good one day, He really loves you a whole lot. He wants to be your friend. And then when you do really bad, He doesn't want to be your friend because He doesn't love you so much. I know for the adults sitting in the back, sometimes we may not admit we think that way, but if you're honest, we all probably have. For the young people, it can become... In your mind, like that coach, you're always trying to please. Come on, coach, put me in the game. Come on, coach, I'll make a touchdown. And then when you fumble the ball, it's like, coach, don't want to put you in. And you'll get this idea that God is like that coach. It's like, man, God don't want to hang out with me today. God doesn't want to put me in the game. Man, I fumbled last time he gave it to me. Listen to me, young people. God will give you the ball every time. God will put you in the game every time. Nobody sits on the bench. Nobody sits on the bench. I know that's more for than just the young people. I'm telling you guys, he doesn't have anybody being water boy in his kingdom. When you say, Lord, I want to do something for you, he says, come on, let's do it again. Let's do it again. But God, I failed last time. That's okay. Let's get up and do it again. Let's do it again. Marriages is the same way. Let's do it again. Let's do it again. Let's make up. Let's go forward. Let's push forward. Children with their parents, parents with children. Let's do it again. Life is about second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth and twenty chances. It's about us not quitting. The Bible says a righteous man may fall seven times, but he'll get back up. Of course I could keep you here with more more failures than just two, but I just tried to pick out the two biggest in my life. Ministry and my wife, my family. I almost lost it all, you know? Come on. And I'm telling you, at the end of the day, I knew that he still loved me. I'm going to pray that for you today. That we as a church will never forget that. Amen? Father, I thank you today that you love us. I thank you, Lord, that you brought us here to hear an encouraging word. Lord, I thank you for 12 lessons over 12 years. God, I'm sure there's so many more lessons that people have learned in this room they could share. But God, the greatest of them is that you love us. God, it is a mystery to me how you could love me the way you do but I trust you that you do. All the times I've failed you, all the times I've made mistakes, all the times I've taken the best you've given me and I've thrown it in the garbage. But God, you still loved me and forgave me. Have you ever felt like the prodigal son? Come on, every head bow and eyes closed. You ever felt like you were just eating with the pigs? And the best that God would ever do for you is just make you a slave in His kingdom? Have you ever felt that way? Like, man, there's just no way. Okay, I've backslid. I'm coming back now. But there's no way I'm going to be right where I was or, or son in the kingdom. I'm just going to be a slave for the rest of my life for God. Come on, you ever felt that way? That is a lie. What happens in that story of the prodigal son? His father runs and meets him and welcomes him home and has a party for him. Come on, that is the God we serve. Today, Father, let's walk in that mercy. Help us to love others the way you loved us. Help us to give our lives to each other. Now, would you just look up at me, please? I want to close a little bit differently today. When I pray one last time and say amen, this is what I want you to do if you can. Find somebody of the same gender, guys with guys, girls with girls, maybe in the same age group if you want somebody you know from your ministry. And just share with them a lesson that you've learned in your Christian walk. Like if this would have been your time to talk, you know, what would you say is one of the biggest lessons you've learned? I want you to share that with somebody on your way out and hear what they've learned. And maybe just pray for each other that you guys will keep learning because the Christian walk is all about learning. 
growing closer to God and just learning to love Him more and receiving it. Okay? Amen? So we're just going to, before you go, you're just going to go up to Jonathan and say, man, what's your greatest lesson? He's going to tell you. You're going to say, man, it's my greatest lesson. Can I pray for you that you'll keep going for God? That's how we'll do it. Everybody got it? If you have any questions, ask Ish, okay? Father, we're going to dismiss, Lord, but God, let's give you the glory for our lessons. We're going to tell each other, God, what we've learned to encourage each other, Lord. And God, we're going to pray for one another if somebody today is just having a hard time learning a lesson or learning to trust you. I pray this will be a great time of fellowship that we'll come back next week and that you'll bless us, God, in all that we do. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Let's bless the Lord. Amen. All right, find somebody. Share your lesson before you leave, and then we'll fellowship. God bless you.